Well, good morning, church. It's great to be with you. I'm all set top of the morning to you, <laughs> except I'm not wearing green. So uh, if you pinch me, I know why. Uh, for those of you that forgot it was St. Patrick's Day until right now, hey, guess what? I'm really excited to have our speaker here uh, this morning, Sean McMullen. I uh, got to know him a little bit this morning, and over the last several days, he's been uh, uh, speaking a rural church conference, has a, a background in many different areas in ministry. And uh, when we talked together, I said, hey, we're doing this series, How Can You Kill Your Marriage? I don't know what he thought on the other end, but I tried to explain it and say, hey, we need to warn each other while it's still today, encourage each other while it's still today so we can stay away from sin's deceitfulness. Last week when we were here together and we uh, are in this series, began it last week, we really talked about the deceiver. There's someone who wants to destroy your marriage. There's a hitman out there that desperately wants to see you fail. So this morning we continue that and Sean's going to bring this idea how do you kill your marriage and introduce the idea of insecurity? Will you welcome with me Sean McMullen? Thanks, man. Uh, let me just start by saying it really is an honor for me to, uh, to be here. I'm grateful for this opportunity, grateful uh, to Mike for giving me this opportunity to uh, share with you. And I want to tell you a little story that I hope will um, set the stage for the rest of what I want to, uh, to share with you today. Uh, my wife and I, uh, her name is Ree, uh, we have three daughters, uh, adult daughters of course, their names are Kendra and Kyla and Kelsey. Kendra means comely, Kyla means full of grace, and Kelsey means from the shipyard. Um, <laughs> it really does. We were, we were just looking for a good alliterative K name at the end. We got a little desperate. But anyway, they're wonderful, wonderful adults now. But years ago, we were working with a church plant, a new church in northeastern Ohio. Uh, of course, we didn't have any of our own facilities at that time, so we rented facilities from a small YMCA in our community. The YMCA was not very big, and we didn't have a lot of breakout space. We had just enough room for a nursery for the smaller kids, but that meant for a period of time, all of the older kids who weren't of nursery age sat uh, in the normal, regular worship service with the parents. So at that time, our kids would have been, Kendra would have been eight, Kyla would have been six, Kelsey would have been two. And so Kelsey had the nursery to go to during our morning worship time. But the other two girls, Kendra age eight and Kyla age six, sat upstairs on either side of their mom during the worship service. I was preaching one day, and I happened to look down, and Rhea always sat up front, and one of the girls on either side of her, and Kendra, our eight-year-old, had a spiral-bound notebook, and she was just furiously writing, I mean, the whole time I was preaching, and it just really sort of piqued my curiosity. So that, uh, that day at uh, lunch, we were at home eating dinner, and I said to Kendra, I said, honey, I, um, I noticed that you were writing an awful lot during my sermon. Do you mind uh, if I see what you, what you wrote? She said, sure, Dad. She hopped off her chair, went into her bedroom, came back, and uh, that little rascal had filled up the front and back of a lined piece of 8.5 by 11 uh, notebook paper with words and phrases that had come directly out of my preaching, directly out of my sermon. 
And so I was uh, casually mentioning to people the next several weeks, had an eight-year-old daughter who was so enthralled with her dad's preaching, she was taking copious notes. And uh, so that went on for a period of time. And then I had to look down one Sunday and Kyla, our six-year-old, who was just sort of cultivating her writing skills, was following in her older sister's footsteps and she was writing too. Now Kyla's writing, again, as a six-year-old, it was a little more laborious. And I would watch her from time to time out of the corner of my eye as I was preaching. And she would whisper up to her mom, and I assumed her mom was whispering back how to spell something and just carefully scribbling something out the whole time I was preaching. Well, at the end of that service, I casually mentioned to several people, I now had two daughters, ages eight and six, so enthralled with their dad's preaching, they're taking copious notes. So we were at the dinner table that Sunday, and, uh, and I said to Kyla, I said, honey, I noticed that you were taking notes like Kendra. Do you mind if I see what you wrote today during my sermon? She said, sure, Dad. She hopped off her chair, went into the bedroom, came back. Now, her 8.5 by 11 piece of paper was uh, creatively folded about 32 times. It was a tiny little square. It took me a little while to open it up. But when I did, the whole extent of Kyla's note-taking during my sermon that day was one sentence. It was scrawled out in big block letters, and it said, I want out of here now. So, needless to say, from that point on, it's been pretty clear to me that probably nobody is as eager to hear what I have to say as I am to say it, but nevertheless, uh, I'm really glad and honored uh, to be here with all of you. Uh, I want to tell you one more story, though, as we begin, and this does set the stage for what I want to talk about today. Um, I am actually in my, my second stint at uh, Standard Pub, well, with Standard Publishing as editor of The Lookout, and prior to the service I am rendering now as editor of The Lookout, uh, I went to a building in Loveland, Ohio every day, commuted, and worked in an office to edit and produce The Lookout. And I'm an early riser. I love the early morning. I love, feel like that's my most productive time of the day, typically. And so I get up pretty early, and I get to the office pretty early. But what I notice is, at some point toward the middle of the afternoon, that early rising sort of caught up with me, you know, got a little sleepy, a little fatigued, and I had a, a couple of options that I would go to uh, if I was starting to feel tired and wanted to have a little help to get me through the rest of the day. The first was walking around the company property. We were in the third floor of a big uh, business unit, and it was beautifully landscaped, and just, it was a lovely place, and when the weather was nice, uh, from time to time, if I got tired in the middle of the afternoon, I'd take 10 or 15 minutes. And, um, and I'd walk. Uh, my second and more frequent and more favored option was this. We should see a Hershey bar there at some point. <laughs> there it is, right there. Okay. Um, so this was one afternoon. I was very tired. I went into our break room. I uh, took a dollar out of my wallet. I punched in, I can still remember the number, number 144, and uh, I waited for that little spiral wire to spin, you know how it does, and then it finally spits out the candy bar and it falls down in that little chute, and you reach your hand in there and you get it out. <clears throat> well, I put in my money, the chute was working fine, the candy bar fell, but then this candy bar did something I've never in my life seen a candy bar do in a vending machine. It hit the inside plastic lip of that flange that you put your hand in to grab it, and it bounced back up in a perfect arch and landed in the first row of product inside the machine about three or four deep in a big long line of strawberry flavored donuts. 
And so now I'm sitting here looking through the glass. I'm inches away from this Hershey bar that I'm really desperately wanting at this point, And I can't get to it. You know, now, thankfully, some wise uh, maintenance employee thought to anchor the machine to the wall. Otherwise, I would have kicked it and pounded it until something actually fell out. But I couldn't. I was totally lost. So I stood there dejected and helplessly looking at my Hershey bar. I knew right where it was. I knew what it was. I knew where it was. I was only just a short distance away from it, but I couldn't get it. I couldn't attain it. And so I left that day a dejected man. That was the only dollar bill I had to my name. And so I was just out of it, you know? There was nothing I could do but go home a bit sad and a bit discouraged. Now, what that reminds me of is this. There are things in life, I think for all of us, no matter how clearly we think we can see them, no matter how close we think they are, and no matter how desperately we want them, that for some reason are just a little bit out of reach. Have you ever felt that way about your marriage? Like a really good marriage for you is just out of reach. You know, you hear people talk about it, they write books about it, they have conferences on it, but that is not your story. Your marriage is not like that. I'm not saying it's a bad marriage. You both love the Lord. You're both actively engaged in the life of the church. You got a lot of good stuff going on, good kids, good family, whatever it is. But, but that really, that ideal of marriage, that thing that you probably at one point in your life thought about and longed for, or, or, or perhaps from time to time still really hope that one day you would attain to, you know what it looks like. You see it clearly, it feels close, but it's just not there. Today, I'd like to talk about just one element of that. One thing that might be contributing to that for you, and that's insecurity. Things like guilt and shame and blame are very common manifestations of insecurity. And you know as well as I, they can do great damage to a marriage. When one or both partners in a marriage relationship are unsure of their identity in Christ, then things like guilt and shame and blame are not far behind. Both the kind that we suffer from inwardly and the kind we unfortunately and almost unwillingly project onto other people. I would like us to consider just one example from the Word of God today that I think in some way sheds light on how insecurity could kill a marriage. It's found in the book of Genesis, chapter 29, Verses 14 through 30. Our central figure here, although there could arguably be several central figures in this story, is a young lady by the name of Leah. And if I had to describe Leah in any short phrase, I would describe her as the girl nobody wanted. Let's read Genesis 29, verses 14 through 30. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes. We'll talk about that in a moment. But Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel. Rachel. 
and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, well, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. And in my New International Version, English translation, there's an exclamation point behind that. And you can imagine why. Jacob would have been rather surprised, I think. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then you'll give you, we'll give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and notice this, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. How would you like to have been Leah? Think for just a moment how difficult not just that embarrassing bridal episode would have been to her, but think how difficult her entire life was because of this. Now, the Bible tells us that Leah had weak eyes. That is a description that is a bit vague, but, but it essentially means she was not attractive. There were either maybe one major thing or maybe several things in Leah's physical appearance that made her a rather unattractive person. Now, that would be hard enough if you were Leah and you sort of came to terms with that and knew it. And it would even be difficult, I think, if you had a sister that just wasn't as unattractive as you. But that wasn't the case. Rachel wasn't just a little prettier than Leah. Rachel was a quantum leap prettier than her sister Leah. Leah was unattractive, but the Bible says specifically Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. You see, Rachel just wasn't somewhat prettier than Leah. She was in your face prettier. She was, you'll never measure up, so quit trying prettier. She was, it hurts every time I look at you, prettier. Now, trying to imagine the emotional heartache that Leah endured every day of her life. Every day, she would watch the husband she desperately loved and desperately longed for in the arms of a sister she desperately despised and in whose shadow she was forced to live. Leah had to live like that every day of her life. And it seems as if there was absolutely nothing Leah could do to gain Jacob's love. No matter how desperately she sought it, she was always in the background, always second place. It just seems to me that Leah lived her entire life feeling like she wasn't really loved by anybody, like she didn't really matter. Now, your story's different, no doubt, but have you ever in, in some way, shape, or form felt like that? 
Have you brought any of these feelings into your marriage relationship? Or maybe are you concerned that your spouse has brought those feelings into your marriage relationship? Now I think would be a good time for us to ask this obvious question. Just how does insecurity, feelings of inferiority, affect a marriage? Well, I want to go back for just a moment and look at Leah's situation again. You know, there's so much about this story that is just way above my realm of imagining. In the first place, why should we even, why should she even go along with her father's plan? You know, I mean, can you picture Laban that night at the wedding? Leah, Leah, I got an idea. Come over here. What, Dad? Well, you know how this is all set up with Jacob and Rachel? Well, Jacob's probably had a lot of wine. He's not going to know much difference. Besides, it's dark. I want to send you there instead of Rachel. You'll become his wife, his first wife. But dad, he doesn't even like me. That's not the point. That's not the point. I want you to find a husband. Well, could you imagine if, if your dad was that desperate for you? You know, I mean, give me a break. This poor girl has nothing going in her favor. But she went along with her father's plan. It would make her even wonder what her father thought of her. And then she tried desperately to please her husband by giving him children. That was a huge thing in that culture. And even when she did, it still didn't matter. She was playing second fiddle. She was so desperate that she encouraged Jacob to sleep with another woman, her servant, in order to bear him more children, hoping that the more children she would give him, the more he would like her. And even that didn't work. It's not in our text, but later she even resorted to bribery to get Jacob to sleep with her so she could have more children to hopefully make him love her, but nothing ever worked. That's why we think of Leah as the girl nobody wanted. Have you ever felt like that? The girl nobody wanted. The boy nobody wanted. Let's look at our situations today. What happens when you bring feelings of insecurity into your marriage? Well, you probably do feel, to one degree or another, worthless or unimportant. But you're committed to hiding those feelings. You find ways. We all find ways. Whether it's a cheery disposition, whether it's to be the first one with a joke, whether it's an air of confidence that we don't really possess. A lot of times, we find all kinds of ways to compensate for those feelings of worthlessness and unimportance. We withhold praise sometimes from the people who are closest to us because we feel insecure. We might even say hurtful things to a spouse or maybe even a child or some close friend just to make sure that everybody sort of stays at the same level as we do. When we struggle with insecurity, we hear every comment, every question directed to us as a personal affront, something that, that, that somehow, either directly or subtly, is expressing a lack of respect or a lack of appreciation toward us. When you're wrestling with insecurity, you're defensive. You become defensive. You're easily hurt. You're easily offended. You're easily insulted. Jokes that in no way were meant to hurt you do hurt you. You find yourself wanting to preserve what little self-esteem you feel like you have left. So sometimes you even resort to things like anger and manipulation to control the people around you. You know, nothing controls a group like an angry person. If you're constantly angry and people get to know it and they're afraid that you're going to get angry, they're afraid you're going to erupt at some point, they're walking on eggshells all the time, that's horrible for everybody, but it puts you in control. And that's why you do it. 
Because it gives you some measure of controlling people. And if that doesn't work, anger, you find other ways to manipulate people. You pity yourself. You do all kinds of things. But all of those things can happen because we feel insecure. So, so let's look at the crux of this and ask ourselves this. How then, let's given the fact that maybe some of us in here in this room today struggle with this, how do we overcome feelings of insecurity in our lives personally and in our marriages? First thing, do this. Identify the true enemy. I think you guys probably touched on this last Sunday, but so let me just touch on it briefly. You know who's behind your insecurity? Satan. He is called the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night. Satan is relentless. He will grab onto the tiniest memory, the tiniest uncomfortable situation in your past, and he will hammer away at it and hammer away at it until that becomes all that you think about. You may have thousands and thousands of great things going on in your life, but Satan knows how to hammer away at that tiniest little thing that you remember that hurt you, that made you feel insignificant, and you can't get it out of your mind. It's the thing that you think of when you wake up at 2.30 in the morning and automatically you say, oh no, I'm never going back to sleep. You know what Jesus said about the devil in John 8? He said, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language because he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan wants you to see yourself as those people who have hurt you in the past saw you. And he wants you today to listen to the criticism or to take to heart the insults or to believe the worst things that people say about you. Folks, I have known, and I'm sure you do too, many sincere Christian people who struggle desperately with this. They've grown up in a home where nobody ever said, I love you. In school, they just didn't quite feel like they fit in. They didn't feel accepted. Even today, those same people, might be some of us here today, don't feel affirmed in our relationships, even when people try hard to affirm us. And after a while, if we let it go, we start to believe those criticisms. We start to believe that these things are our fault and we buy into Satan's lie. What we need to do, and I don't mean to oversimplify this, is simply start by taking the advice of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, when he said, Do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give him any place to enter your life and build on that insecurity. Do not let him tell you. Do not let your past circumstances tell you that you are insignificant or unimportant or that you've done too many wrong things or you've fouled up too many times that God can't love you and redeem you and make you a perfect person in his eyes because that's what God is in the business of doing. You think God can't do that, then you don't know who you're dealing with. You cannot underestimate him when it comes to that. Second thing is this, if your insecurity stems from past hurts and failures, remember this basic concept, but that to be a Christian is to be made new. It's to be forgiven of everything forever. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. If you belong to Jesus Christ right now as I'm speaking, your past has been wiped away. Your slate has been wiped clean. 
And it doesn't matter what you've done in the past, whether that's your recent past or your distant past. Jesus Christ has the power and the willingness to cleanse you of every sin and every failure and every embarrassing moment you've ever had in your life. And then let's think of this third concept. If you have allowed your identity to be rooted in how people have spoken to you in the past, how they treat you, what I want to encourage you to do today in all of that is to cling to your identity in Christ instead. Paul said this in Romans 8. It's a familiar passage. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now, folks, anybody in the world can criticize you, and you've probably experienced that to some level. But you know there is only one being in all of the vast universe or universes. There is only one being in all of life who has the authority to condemn you. God said this. Uh, or, or, or this is in, John said this in John 5, 22. Or Jesus said it. God has entrusted all judgment to the Son. There's only one person who has authority to judge you, and that is the Son, Jesus Christ. Now, please think about this. The only person in the world, the only person in all the vast universe who has the power to condemn you and to criticize you has already died for you. Think about that. The only person who has the power to accuse you or criticize you or condemn you already went to the cross and died for you. Who does that leave to condemn you? Like the scripture says, no one. So when you and I cling to our identity in Christ, that's where our strength comes from. That's where our confidence comes from. That's who who we know who we are comes from. Right now, that same Jesus is at the right hand of God making intercession for you. He is on your side. So let me just wrap it up with this. What if you're not necessarily the one in the marriage relationship who's wrestling with insecurity? I mean, you could be and you don't know it, but what if you don't know? What if, what if it's your mate? What if you're the one person who's not so insecure, but your mate is? What can you do to help your mate who is struggling with insecurity? I have just a few very simple steps I'd like to recommend. The first one is this. Put down your phone. Now, translate that to mean show your mate that you're engaged that you're paying attention, that you care about what's going on in their lives. You see, you struggle with somebody for many years who wrestles with insecurity, and there's a period of time for all of us where if we're not careful, it becomes old hat. You get so tired of it, you know? You think, when, when will they snap out of this? When, when, when can this get better? And sometimes if it doesn't, you start to give up. I'm just saying, don't do that. There's too much at stake there. There's way too much at stake in your marriage and your family to do that. 
So let's start simply by paying attention to those struggling mates or struggling family members who are wrestling with insecurity. And let's listen to them. Even if you listen to them for the 50th time. A little bit of a different scenario, but I want to tell you this story very quickly. Um, My mom and dad are both gone. They're in the presence of the Lord today. And my mom had a heart attack uh, toward the latter part of her life, which led to something our doctors refer to as vascular dementia. It was dementia that came on because of poor circulation and difficulties with her heart. Now, uh, my mom and dad both grew to a ripe old age, and I'm very thankful for that. But in my mom's last several years of life, she and my dad uh, lived in our family home together, and my dad was my mom's primary caregiver. And uh, thankfully... uh, God fortuitously brought us back to my hometown, and I was able to live for many, many years, only a mile from my mom and dad. But um, I would notice when I would spend time with my mom and dad, I'd go to their home, and we'd have them into our home. When my mom was wrestling with this illness, this disease, uh, she would ask my dad the same question, almost word for word, over and over and over and over again, multiple times. And I've always admired my dad all my life. But I sure admired him in this instance because it did not matter how many times my mom asked that question. If it was five times or if it was 50 times. My dad always responded as if it were the first time. Always. I've never had so much admiration for my father as I did in that. Now, that's a different scenario. But what I'm saying is sometimes you get weary of answering questions or listening to issues of somebody who struggles with insecurity. I'm just saying, ask God to give you the grace and the power and the mercy and the love and the patience to listen and to help and perhaps work through a breakthrough. I would say this, don't criticize, but encourage. Find ways to build that partner up. Don't question, but affirm. Don't complain, be positive. Don't withdraw, engage. Don't be impatient, don't be dismissive. Make an honest attempt to understand that person's fears and insecurities. You and I are not counselors. We may not be the best people to help someone who struggles with that, but we can certainly come alongside them and be supportive. We can love them. We can say to you, you know what? I'm going to love you no matter what. You can't do anything to make me not love you. You can't be any kind of a person to make me not love you. I made a commitment to Jesus Christ when I married you. And I told him I would love you forever as long as I live for better, for worse. And so there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can be. There's nothing you can struggle with that would make me love you less than I love you right now. And then, of course, you need to pray. You need to pray personally, privately. And when you can, you need to pray together with that person who struggles with insecurity. But when you're praying by yourself, maybe you could pray this. Lord, how would you have me love my mate? There's an epilogue to my Hershey bar story. That happened on a Tuesday. And I went home, a sad and dejected man. Came back to my office the next day, Wednesday morning, and there on my desk with about five or six packs of strawberry donuts was my long-lost Hershey bar. I was surprised, but then I discovered that my administrative assistant had taken pity on me 
And when I left in such a dejected state that evening, she went back to the break room and kept cranking in, putting in the dollar bills, and spinning the little spiral wire until my personal Hershey bar came out with all of those strawberry-flavored donuts. And I thought to myself, you know what? That, too, is like the way God works in our lives. You do the right things, the things God has called you to do, so that they become routine. So when you're dealing in a God-honoring way with that mate who is struggling with insecurity, or if you're struggling with it yourself and you're striving to, do the, striving to do the things that God would have you do, you keep doing those so that they become commonplace, and then one day you might be very, very surprised. And you'll look around and your life and your marriage are different. And you'll almost at one point say to yourself, how did that happen? Well, that's just what God does. He works in our lives through our day-to-day faithfulness. Every single small decision that we make, every reaction day after day after day to bring about good and to redeem it and to make it right. Be obedient to God and trust that in his time, he'll make it right. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, you have shown us such mercy and grace. And you know, Father, when we think about the things that we deal with in our minds, I think one way I like to look at it is ever since the fall, every one of us has some degree of mental illness. We're not what we ought to be. And it is really just a matter of degree. And Father, anxiety and insecurity don't have to relate to mental illness. But what we do know, Father, is that there are things that our mind does that discourage us and dissuade us. And, and so much of it, Father, is not even true. Would you please help us, Father, to stand against the assaults of our enemy, not to give him any place to put his foot, no foothold whatsoever. May we trust in our identity in Jesus Christ. The only one who condemn us, Father, has, who can condemn us has already died for us. You've given us this grace, this mercy, this hope, this abundant life. Please help us to live it out to the praise of your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.